because I didn't do it earlier, basically. <laughs> basically, that's what's going on. I have a checklist, and for some reason, I, I forgot to, to, to do that one this morning. But uh, we're going to be in 1 John chapter 4, and as Corinne read the entire chapter earlier today, we're not going to read a ton of 1 John chapter 4. We're going to read a few verses, but I just want to remind you before we jump into that, vinetrustful.com, uh, connection cards are there, our giving is also there. If you're here in the room, you know, you guys have blue connection cards on your tables. They're generosity envelopes at the back in the coffee area if you want to use those. But mainly, we're doing it online during this season. I know we have a number of people that are home this week, whether they're quarantining because uh, there's exposures at school or you're sick. I want to welcome you as well. Thank you for joining us. To, today, the title is God Is. God Is. In 1 John chapter 4, John covers one of the most important theological truths about God. We read it earlier as a part of our worship service, but it's God is love, which is in verse 16. We know how much God loves us, and we have put our trust in his love. God is love, and all who live in love live in God, and God lives in them. And as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. One of the most important theological truths right here about our God. God is love. But this theological truth that God is love isn't to be understood in isolation, but it's to be understood in connection and in conjunction with a greater, larger picture of who God really is. So I've titled this talk today, God Is, and we're going to be talking out of 1 John 4, but we're really going to be kind of doing this overview of who God is, and then we're going to finish up with talking about how God is love. Because I think when we understand the other aspects of God, in a larger view of God, we can have a better understanding of what it means for him to be fully and completely love. And a little side note here, I cannot cover everything that God is in one message, Right? Like, all the books in all the world could not cover all the things that God is. Every sermon that's ever been preached since Jesus walked the earth could not cover everything that God is. So I'm going to, I titled it God is, we're going to cover a lot of who God the Father is, the Son, the Holy Spirit, and all of that. But just, just, okay, you know, just, I'm not going to cover it all, okay? It's not, there's no way I can cover all that God is. We're just going to go over portions of it, pieces of it. We're going to look at four paradoxical theological truths today. Yes, you heard that right. Paradoxical theological truths. Uh, what is a paradox? Paradox are two things that seemingly are in contrast to one another that actually work together. And so we're going to look at four aspects of God, four groups of two that seem like they are opposite parts of someone's character. They could not coexist, but in God, they are one together. He is both simultaneously. So, uh, there's these things about God that I think we read in Scripture. And sometimes when we read Scripture, it, it seems to even contradict itself. And so a lot of times we just skip over it. It's like, well, that doesn't really compute with me, and I don't know if I understand that, so we just kind of move on. Well, today I want to encourage us to really think deeply about God, to think deeply about the paradoxes of who God is. When I was a kid, my dad tells this story a, a lot that, uh, I was a young boy, and we're driving in the car one time. My dad's driving, and it's just me in the back seat. And out of nowhere, just out of the blue, 
uh, I said, hey, Dad, what's PMS? And so my dad in this moment is like, oh, yeah, this is probably a discussion for your mom. But my dad just says, uh, the way he tells the story, is he goes, well, it's, a it's, it's premenstrual syndrome. And then me in the backseat, I go, oh, okay. I guess, I guess I knew, right? And my dad's like, well, I guess Nathan knew. So I never asked another question. Like, that was it. it just, we just moved on. My dad was like, woo, dodge that bullet. Let's just move on. Maybe you can explain it. You know, somebody else can explain that to him when he's a lot older. But I think sometimes it, we look at Scripture and we, we hear truths about God. We hear theological statements. We read things about God. And we're like, oh, okay. You know, we don't really know the depth of that, but we just kind of, eh, well, I, I'll discuss that or I'll cover it later. But it's really important for us to spend some time in our walk with God, thinking and considering the deep theological truths, the paradoxes, the things that, uh, that, that don't seem to make sense so that we can understand the greatness, the balance, the complexity of our God. So when we read John, you know, 1 John 4 earlier this week, when I read it, as we read it together and we see God is love, I wanted to also talk about some of these other big, massive things about God so that we can have a greater understanding about love. We use this word love all the time. We, we, we say, you know, I love chicken. You know, I love Chick-fil-A chicken. And I love my wife. Hopefully it's a completely different type of love, right? That you love Chick-fil-A and love your wife. Hopefully it's completely different. We, we, we throw that word around. But I think sometimes even when we read God is love, the gravity of that statement is lost on us. The gravity of what that really means in light of eternity, in light of our hearts, in light of us as a unique individual, is often lost. So we're going to jump in in the first thing we're going to talk, or the first group of two. So we're going to look at four groups of two, four paradoxical theological statements. All right, The first one is that God is a person and a spirit. God is a person and a spirit. See, God is a person. He's not just a mist or just a presence. He's not an inanimate object or an unfeeling, unemotional, abstract entity. God is a person. God is a personal God. He has feelings. He reciprocates relationships. He has a will. He's a person. God interacts relationally with his people. He talks to us, he listens to us, he guides us, he directs us. God can be pleased and God can be grieved. We are emotional beings because our God is an emotional being. Our God is a person. His original design, his original plan was to interact with us on a daily basis. When we look at what took place in the Garden of Eden, he walked with Adam and Eve. He talked with them. He's a person. Genesis chapter 3, verse 8. Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? Now, in the original Hebrew that this was written, there's a lot more going on here, I think, than a lot of times we, we realize. One, we see God as a person, and he walked in the garden. He wanted to commune with them. He wanted to talk with them. He's a person, but also, he has a personal name. Now, for us, we read Lord God, but in the Old Testament, all through the Old Testament, there's all kinds of personal names for God. 
You know, we use the word God to describe our Heavenly Father, who is our, you know, the, the, the one and only true God, but lots of different religions use the same word. They use God to describe whoever they're worshiping. But in the Old Testament, God had a personal name. There's all kinds of personal names for God. There was Jehovah Jireh, Jehovah Nisi. There was Yahweh and all kinds of Elohim. There, there was these personal names. So God is a person because he has a personal name. But not only is God a person, he is also a spirit. Now we read in John 4, God is a spirit. Those who worship him must do it in spirit and in truth. First John 4, uh, verse 4 and verse 13. As I was reading this chapter and we read it earlier in our worship uh, uh, the worship portion when Corinne read it, we see, it says, the spirit who lives in you is greater than the spirit who lives in the world. We're talking about the spirit of God. God is not just a person, he is also a spirit. He's given us his spirit, capitalized spirit, the Holy Spirit, as proof that we live in him and he in us. See, God is not confined to a physical body. Even though he is a person, he has a will, he's an emotional being, he is a person. He is also a spirit. He transcends all physical and natural limitations. Now, oftentimes when we think of a spirit, we think of this mist, this presence, this kind of entity, this thing, and we don't think of a person with feelings and desires and a will. But God is both. He transcends all physical and natural limitations, which is what uh, David wrote in Psalm 139. He says, I can't escape from your spirit. I can never get away from your presence. If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I go down to the grave, you are there. God is everywhere at all times. He is a person, but he is a spirit who is everywhere at all times. See, the fact that God is a spirit and cannot be adequately represented by any physical object has been a counter to idolatry and the worship of nature over the course of history. Now, we see idolatry happen all through the Old Testament. It happens today. People worship idols. They worship uh, you know, physical creations. But no one has ever created images of our Heavenly Father because He's a spirit and He can't be uh, uh, portrayed in any way like that. He's a person with a will. He's a person, but He's also a spirit. He transcends all physical limitations. Two things about God that when we normally think of a person, we think of a concrete physical person standing in a flesh. We think of a spirit, we think of an inanimate, you know, kind of mist, a presence, this, a, a ghost. But God is a person and a spirit at the same time. Not only has God a person and a spirit, another paradoxical theological thing about God is God is one and he is three. God is one. We serve one God. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, they are one. Yet, they are three distinct persons. Three distinct persons who are one God. You know, in contrast to the surrounding nations in the Old Testament, which were polytheistic, meaning they worshipped multiple gods, the Israelites of the Old Testament worshipped the one true God. God revealed himself to the people of Israel as the one and only true God. Now there's this word, uh, it's the most widely used term and name for God in the Old Testament, which is Elohim. And the word Elohim in the Hebrew language is actually a plural word. It's a word that's plural, meaning that there's more than one, right? Singular words are plural words. Singular words is one, plural is there's more than one. So Elohim was a plural word, yet when it was written in Hebrew, the subject, the verb, all the surrounding pronouns around it were singular in nature. Now, for us, that would seem like bad grammar, because when we were to use plural pronouns, plural verbs with plural subjects, but this is the way God is. He is 
three. He is plural. He is more than one. He is multiple, yet he is one at the same time. He is one God in three distinct persons. In Deuteronomy chapter 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. He is one, but he is also three, which we came up with the word Trinity. Now, the word Trinity, you've probably heard it a billion times. Uh, lots of churches are named Trinity. Uh, we, we talk about the Trinity. God is three. But the word Trinity is not actually in Scripture. It's a word that, w- that was in- invented to describe this, undescri- this indescribable thing. So well, we're going to put a word on this thing about God. It's indescribable, so we have to come up with this word, and we're going to call it Trinity. And what it means is God is three in one. The word Trinity, is, it's not found in the Bible, but the teaching of the Trinity that God is three in one is found throughout the Bible. I mean, the deity and separation of Jesus as the Son of God required the articulation of the Trinity because Jesus was 100% God, yet 100% man at the same time. Jesus prayed and talked to his Father. So there was a separation. There's two different distinct persons. Now, there's some that believe in what's called the oneness doctrine, that God is only one. He's not three. He's just one. But when you read the New Testament, that doesn't make any sense because how would Jesus be praying to his Father if they were one at the same time? There's three distinct persons. So the fact that Jesus was 100% God, he was there at the beginning of creation, as John chapter 1 says, he was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God, right? The world was created, you know, through the Word. All right, so Jesus is one with God, but he is also separate. But also the New Testament teaching of the Holy Spirit also required the articulation of the Trinity. He said, you know what? The Holy Spirit, Jesus said, I must leave the earth and go to heaven so that that the Holy Spirit can come. A third distinct person. He's one God. Here, O Israel, the Lord our God, he is one. Yet, he is three. Although this concept of the Trinity will forever really remain a mystery while we're on this planet, it cannot be comprehended by our finite minds. And even though it will always be a mystery, it doesn't mean we should gloss over it and not think about it. It doesn't mean we shouldn't sit and ponder the greatness, the vastness of our God. In AD 381 is when the Council of Nicaea and and in Constantinople, when they decided that to come up with this term uh, of Trinity, because there's three persons, but there's only one divine substance, one divine nature, which is God. Now, the definition uh, of the Trinity has been accepted in most Christian Uh, denominations and churches throughout the history, but we must always be careful to not focus too much on the fact that they are three separate persons that we lose sight that they are one God. And we must be very careful not to focus on the fact that they are one God that we lose sight that they are very separate and distinct persons. And the New Testament says that the Spirit of God can be grieved. That is the Holy Spirit. The Son of God, which is Jesus, he came in a physical form in the flesh and died on a cross. Then there's God the Father. And God the Father is one that no one on earth earth has ever seen. His perfection, his holiness, his power is so great that if any human being were to see God the Father, they would instantly cease to be human. They would leave this earth and they would enter into heaven. They would die. Which leads us to 
Number three. This is probably my favorite uh, one of these that we'll talk about today. Because it's this, this thing about God that is, uh, it's so complicated, unique, and wonderful. It's beautiful. God is imminent, and God is transcendent. Now I'm going to explain these two things because they're big words. But there's all different types of views of God and how we see who God is and how God interacts with his people. And so many times, people focus on God's imminence and they lose sight of his transcendence, or they focus on his transcendence and lose sight of his imminence. Well, what does imminent mean? Imminent means that he is indwelling, he's inherent. It means that he is with us, he is everywhere at all times. That he interacts with his people, he interacts with his creation, he is with us. That he is on this earth with us, that he is a God close by. That's what it says in Jeremiah. He says, he's a God close by. Jesus said, the Holy Spirit is in you, he is with you. He is imminent. God is in everything. He is imminent. Acts chapter 17 Verse 27, Paul says, His purpose was for the nations to seek after God, perhaps feel their way toward Him and find Him, though He is not far from any one of us. It's in God we live and we move and we exist. God's imminence means that He is present and active in His creation. Now, there's a a term called a deist. What is a deist? A deist is someone who believes that God created the earth, set it in motion, but then let evolution take over, and he's not personally involved in it. All right? But the Bible promises otherwise. The Bible, all over Scripture, promises that he is imminent. He is with us. You know, whenever Maddie was four, uh, I set out on the wonderful and uh, difficult task of coaching a four-year-old soccer team. And anyone who's ever coached a four-year-old soccer team would know it is one of the most challenging things you'll ever do on the face of the planet. It's like herding blind cats the entire time. But there is this unique uh, thing about, about uh, coaching four-year-olds. There's no refs whenever you get to the games. The coaches are the refs. So the coaches not only coach the team, but they're also on the field, running up and down the field with the team coaching them, right? So you're literally running around chasing all these little kids that are in this big ball, you know, running after a ball, and then there's the four others that are playing with the grass and stuff on the sideline, and you're trying to like, come on, get over here, get over here. I remember there was this one time that I'm getting really into the game. Like our team, we, we weren't the greatest team, you know? We don't keep score uh, we, and four-year-old soccer, but we kept score, and we weren't doing very well throughout the season. And I remember there was one game, we're winning, like, one to zero. And I'm thinking, maybe our team is actually going to beat another team. This is awesome. And I'm out there on the field, and I'm, like, running alongside uh, of, the, of the kids, and I'm telling the kids, you know, like, let's go. Let's get it. You know, kick it to Johnny. Like, Johnny's open. Kick the ball to Johnny. And I'm running. And I remember, as I'm running down the field, one of our players is on, on the right of me, Another player is on the left, and this one is wide open by the goal. And so I start yelling to this kid, like, go, go, he's open, kick it to him, he can score. And he kicks the ball, and it doesn't quite get to the other player. But I'm standing right there, and I'm on the field, and so I just help it a little bit. And I just kick the ball, right? And then the other ref's like, what are you doing? I'm like, I know, I just, I got caught up in the moment. I kicked it, and we scored. And I'm like, I'm so sorry, but we're not keeping the score anyways, right? Like, it doesn't really matter that I, that I scored for our team. I mean, we're winning 2-0, but we don't keep score, right? But I'm out there, and I'm playing, 
with the kids, and, and it was fun, and I got a little caught up, forgot that I wasn't supposed to be joining the game. But I want us to think about this idea of God imminent in, the, in, the, uh, in light of the illustration of being a, a soccer game on a field, right? Most of the time, when we think of God, we think of him in a few different ways. Some people think of God that he created the game of soccer. He created the game of soccer, and then he lets other people play, and then he's off doing something else somewhere else. The game is being played, people are playing soccer, and they're scoring, and they're following the rules and all that, and he created the game, and he's nowhere to be seen. A lot of people, they view God as a coach from the sidelines. There's all these people playing the game, and that he's on the sidelines just yelling, commanding people, giving people plays. Like, run the play, here's what you're supposed to do, and coaching them, and sometimes encouraging them, and this is what you're supposed to do. But we believe that God is not the creator of the game that just set it in motion and left it alone. We believe that God is not a coach on the sidelines just yelling. But we believe that God is actively on the field with us, helping us every single step of the day. That's the, that's the theological concept of his imminence. That he is with us every single moment of every single day. But God is not just imminent, as we read a moment ago, or we said he's also transcendent, which means exceeding usual limits. He's surpassing He's being beyond comprehension. This is the idea that even though God is imminent and that we exist, we, in, in him we exist, we move, all right? He, uh, we are, he's with us at all, every moment of the day. He's also transcendent, meaning he is separate, and he is separate from his creation. He is not just a God close by, but in Jeremiah it says, they've forgotten that I'm also a God far off. He's so powerful. He's so beyond our understanding and comprehension, but also he is separate from his creation. See, here's the thing. God must exist for us to exist. If God didn't exist, we would not exist. God holds everything, all of life, together. He created all of life. He implanted himself in all of life, and all of life exists because God exists. Yet, God does not need for us to exist for him to exist. That's his imminence and his transcendence. His imminence is he is with us at all times because he is in us, he's around us. It's his very nature that holds all life together. It's his very essence that holds our physical, our spiritual, our mental, and our emotional self together. It's his very presence. It's his essence that's going to sustain us through all eternity. The reason that we will never die, that our spirit and our soul will live on forever is because God is in us and he is with us and he's attached himself to our very nature and our being, but he is separate from us. He doesn't need for us to exist, for him to exist. It's not a codependent relationship. We are dependent on him, but he is independent of us. God can claim all seven billion people on the planet as dependents on his tax return. We're all dependent on him, yet God doesn't need us at all. He has no needs. Which is what Paul says in Acts 17. He's the God who made the world and everything in it. He's Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in man-made temples. Human hands can't serve his needs, for he has no needs. God needs nothing. He himself gives life and breath to everything. And he, he satisfies every need. He is imminent. He is with us. But he is transcendent. He is separate from. Which leads us to number four. God is holy and he is love. God is holy. He is separate from us. What that holy means is he is set apart and he is separate. 
But what God's holiness speaks to is his absolute perfection. There is no imperfection around God. He is 100% perfect. God's holiness refers to his power, refers to his creativity, refers to his intellect. God's holiness is the reason why no imperfection can be found around him. In the Old Testament, when God was meeting with Moses on Mount Sinai, and Moses says, God, show me your face. God says, I can't or you will die. You cannot see my face because God is perfect and no imperfection can be around him. So every part of the human experience that has imperfections in it would have to leave if we encountered his holiness and his perfection and all its power. He says, you can't see my face. So God passed by and said, I'll show you the back of my head. And then Moses, his face, shone, for, glowed like the sun for days just by seeing the back of God's head from a far off distance. He's holy. He is perfect. 1 John 4, verse 12 says, no one has ever seen God. He made the world and everything in it. He's Lord of heaven and earth. He doesn't live in man-made temples. No one has ever seen God because He's holy. We can't see Him. But now, you must be holy in everything you do just as God who chose you is holy. His holiness and His perfection is something that we are to aspire to as believers. As followers of Jesus, our aim is to be as holy as God is. We're to strive for moral purity. We're to strive for holiness because that's, what, uh, that's why Jesus came and, and died so that we could be made holy. Not only is God holy, but he's love. Anyone who does not love does not know God for God himself is love. So you have God's holiness, his perfection. You have God's uh, unwillingness to be around imperfection. You have God's power and glory that demands perfection. But then you have his love that provided the sacrifice needed so that we could be perfect. One day when we enter into eternity, we will no longer sin. We will no longer make mistakes. We will no longer be imperfect. We will be eternal. And that's because of God's love. God is holy, but he is also love. There's a tension between this love and holiness, and it's a paradox. It's God's holiness and perfection that demands a payment for sin. Because of our sin, because of our mistakes, a payment is demanded. A price must be paid. But it is God's love that provided the payment at no cost to us. It's our sin that mars our spirit. But it's God's love that wipes it clean. In our personal walk with God, we must guard against an emphasis on God's love that would eliminate our responsibility to strive towards moral purity. 
we must, dis, we must be careful to not emphasize so much on the love of God and the grace of God that we forget He's commanded and called us to be holy. That He's called us to work. He's called us to allow Him to work on us. But we must also guard against an emphasis on His holiness that we ignore the reality of His grace. So we become legalistic. We must guard against an emphasis on His holiness that would cause us to ignore His mercy and His goodness. God loved the world so much, He gave His one and only Son. So that everyone who believes in Him will not perish, but have eternal life. God is holy. God is imminent. God is transcendent. God is a person. He's a spirit. He is three, and he is one. He is above all. He is more powerful than all, and he is love. And in his vast love, he has invited us to live in him. He has invited us to know him deeply and experience him greatly. He is perfect in every way. So our imperfections shouldn't be allowed to to interact with his perfection, but he provided the sacrifice in the form of his son so that we could know him deeply and we could experience him greatly. And then in 1 John 4, 17, cycling back to our verse for today in our chapters, as we live in God, what happens? See, God has invited us to live in him. He said, I know that you are imperfect and you've made mistakes and you don't deserve. None of us deserve to have an intimate relationship with God. None of us deserve for the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, to be with us, and to be in us. But he said, I'm going to freely provide my son as a sacrifice for your sins so that you can live with me and in me at all times. But he says, as we live in God, our love grows more perfect. If God is love and he's invited us to live in him, living in him means living in love. So what is the litmus test? How do we know as followers of Jesus, are we following Jesus? Is our love growing more perfect? Are we growing in love? If we're not growing in love, then we're not growing in God because God is love. We've talked about this a lot around here, that we can know all about God, but not know God intimately. We don't want to know about God. We want to know God. We want to be in a personal, intimate relationship with him. We want to know his personality, his character, his will. We want to be in line with him. How do we know if we're doing that? Our love is growing. If our love isn't growing, we're not growing in God. We might be growing in the knowledge of God, but we're not growing in God if our love is not growing. As we live in God, it's our love that grows more perfect. It's not our knowledge that grows more perfect. It's not our wisdom. It's not our understanding. We'll grow in all those things, sure. But if we're living in God, what is growing? It's our love. We can grow in wisdom. We can grow in knowledge without growing in God, without growing in love. And for too long, too many believers, too many followers of Jesus have grown in knowledge of God, but not grown in the love of God and loving people. Because we read it all over this uh, chapter earlier when Corinne read it during worship. We have to be loving other people. He says, uh, John writes, if we're not loving our brother and sister, God isn't in us. I mean, that's a pretty sobering statement, isn't it? I look at my life and I say, I'm not loving And John says, God is not in me. God's not with me. I'm not living in God unless my love 
is growing. God is love. As we live in him, our love grows more perfect. Are you growing in love? Josh, would you go ahead and come on up and get ready? You know, something we say around here all the time, you guys have heard me say it a hundred times, you'll probably hear me say it a thousand more. It's about progress, not perfection. So when we sit in moments like this, when we begin to do some self-assessment, we begin to allow the Holy Spirit to come in and show us the areas where we have not been loving, we've not been growing, it's easy to start, beat our, to, to start to beat ourselves up and to feel guilty and to feel condemnation, but that's not from God. Condemnation is not from God. Conviction is from God, but conviction always leads us to grow in Him where condemnation leads us away from Him. So we start feeling guilty and shameful that we're not loving well and it's driving us away from God. That's condemnation from the enemy, not conviction of the Holy Spirit because the conviction of the Holy Spirit always brings us in to God. But in these moments as we begin to do some self-assessment and we say, am I growing in love? We need to remember it's about progress, not perfection. It's about growth. It's about getting better. So as I studied 1 John 4 this week and thought about God is love, I then came across verse 17. I just could not get this verse out of my head. Is my love growing more perfect? Is my love growing? Now we know from Scripture, we know from the past couple weeks we've talked about here, love is not in talk, it's not in word, it's in deed. We're to show our love by the way we treat other people. Am I growing in my love towards other people? Have I been focused too much on myself and not enough on God and on others? Is my love growing? As I was praying this morning, going over this service and what to do and what to talk about, and you know, or, or I mean, I already wrote down what to talk about, but just how to formulate this and asking God, I felt a nudge in my own heart, in my own spirit. Well, God said, focus on the people. Focus on the people. So often, I focus on me what I'm going to say, how it's going to sound. Too often, are, you, are people going to like it? When I, heard, when I just felt that impression, God said, focus on the people, I realized I've been lacking in love because I've been focused on myself. Even while doing something very good, something I'm called to do, I can focus on myself as I do something that God has asked me to do. Am I growing in love? Are you growing in love? Would you close your eyes and we're going to pray this morning? Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given us so much to meditate on, to digest, to understand. So much truth in your word. Yet, we thank you that you are so much bigger than we could ever fully comprehend. So we place our faith in you because we can know you intimately, yet we can never know you fully while we're still on this earth. 
We place our faith in your power. We place our faith in your eternal nature. We place our faith in your love. It's your love that gives us all that we need. It's your love that satisfies everything that we need on this earth. God, and as we sing this next song, and as we consider your love, as we consider how well we've been loving, I pray that we would just have an encounter with your love, and it would drive us to love others the way that you've loved us. In Jesus' name.